This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, what a remarkable guest, the president of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. Really a fascinating person, a scholar, a Jewish leader, a visionary, and it was such a pleasure to speak with someone who I had read a lot about, read from, and never really spoken to before, and got a real in-depth understanding of his background, his life, and his dreams for the future. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Follow or subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, etc. Please spread the word by sharing this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone you know. And now, to our conversation with Yeshiva University President Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. We are here with Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, the president of Yeshiva University. And we're very excited to have him. Actually, not the first president that we've had on the show of Yeshiva University. We've had Dr. Richard Joel on the program before. We've had Rabbi Ari Lamb on the program before, who was not a president, but he's a grandson of a president and the assistant to the current president who we're about to speak to, I believe. Am I, am I right about that, Ari? Okay. First of all, we see a lot of connections with great Ari's here. <laughs> That's right, baby. So, so let me just say how honored I am to be on your program with another wonderful Ari, like Ari Lam. Ari Lam was a special counselor to me and is amazing. Unbelievable <laughs> guy. Yeah. Amazing. And Ari Koretsky similarly is amazing. So I love what you're doing. And I am so pleased to be with you today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh... You know, I've been I've followed your journey, I guess, so to speak, from from afar. You just as a a curious reader of the Jewish world, and you know, watching what's going on up at, at YU, and of course, YU is very much in the news, which like for non-academic reasons, for athletic reasons, in the last year or so, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and uh, and so forth. But before we get to the YU days, I know there's a lot that came before that. So where did it all start for you? That's uh, a great, that's a great question. I would say it started for me at Sinai. At the hospital or the mountain? We're talking <laughs> the mountain, which could be either, by the way. <laughs> but I, I make it a real strong point to root identity in our past, and and that we begin at Sinai, and that it's and and. It's not a joke when Chazal say that all the Neshamot were there. And in, in, in many ways, you know, whatever it means mystically, but the, the idea that we are present in a, a continuity and a and continuation from the stories, you know, from our not forefathers and foremothers, but our fathers and mothers is very central to my life. But if you don't mind, we're, we're going to skip a few generations from there. Otherwise, yeah, that would be a long... <laughs> Just a couple, just because I know there's some time constraints. Why don't I start by my grandparents? Perfect. I'm going to start with my namesake. And my namesake is 
Arjulab, Hamburg, and he was in Poland raising my grandmother. It's my great grandfather, actually. My great grandfather's Arjulab, Hamburg. And he was raising my grandmother. His wife passed away, my great grandmother. When so he was raising her without his wife, she got married to my grandfather. Had two sons living in the same little shtetl in Poland. The shtetl was called Dukst. I once asked my grandmother how big was Dukst. She said, "Hold up your thumb." She said, "It's like half that." It's really a small little, like nothing, like hilltop, you know, shtetl. And uh, there's actually things written about Dukst, and you can go online and check. And uh, the Nazis invaded, and Russia invaded. And they split up Poland. Russia took over uh, their section. And my grandmother, with her two sons, left. What happens is my grandfather left right before the war to go to America to try to establish a Parnassa. And then during the war, my grandmother and her two sons, oldest sons, my uncle Meyer and Julius, left. And my great-grandfather was very upset. And he, he didn't want her to go because, you know, it was the last, it was what he had. And, you know, it was really a moment that when she left him with her two children to go to America, knowing they'll never see each other again. So we actually have letters from my great-grandfather from Russian-occupied Poland writing to my grandmother after she left and we we found these letters and one of my cousins put it together in a timeline of where the russians were when the nazis came in and what happened to the community and there was a moment there's one letter one of his last letters because the nazis came in and killed them all so one of his last letters that he wrote in his life to my grandmother was Tamu Uru Kito Vasha. Taste and see how great is God. Said my my Sarla, that's my grandmother. You can imagine the Khil Hashem that's taking place here. The Khil Shabbat. What the Russians have done. They're forcing everyone to work on Shabbat. And I will never do it. But all the Jewish community, all around me, that's what they're doing. Tamuru, Kitov Hashem, my two grandchildren, Yudel and Meyer, don't have to ever see that in their lives. Sounds like at this point, he probably now finally appreciated that his family had gotten out. So the, your grandfather was Meyer? My grandfather born in America. My father was born in in America afterwards, meaning my grandmother left with my two uncles, Meyer and, and Udall, who Julius, became yeah. Julius. And then there was another child born afterwards. Yeah. My uncle's Julie Berman, who's ah, uh, sure. very renowned. He was a significant Talmud Chacham, a very successful lawyer, and a, and a renowned communal leader. A student to the Rav, student to Rav Salvechik. He was a very important influence on my life. 
my uncle. I, I grew up davening next to him. My father, my uncle, my grandfather were all on the same row. We all moved to Forest Hills. So it was, it was a very, you know, it was a family that was deeply connected. And my father, they moved to Hartford. That itself is a story. If I could share that with you, I would like please, to Please, please do. Okay. So my grandfather came to America. My grandpa was a major, it was a Talmud Chacham, New Shas. Whenever I would I have a, a test in high school or something, you know, I'd go to my grandfather, he'd open up whatever I was doing, and we'd learn it. Like, he knew he was holding. And he came to America, and he started off as a rub in Rhode Island. But he only spoke Yiddish. So he really couldn't succeed as a rabbi in America. And his, he had to bring his children over and get a parnasa. So he went to become a shochet. And he moved to Hartford. And that's what he did. And he was known in Hartford. He was like the... He was a rabbi, obviously, to the point when Rav Moshe Feinstein left New York to write to vote to people, he would go to Hartford to my, grandpa, my grandparents' house. There were three summers where he came to my grandparents' house. He left the Lower East Side to go to Hartford, and he stayed by my grandparents. Wow. So we have amazing Rav Moshe stories. At my father, Harini Kapart Mishkavo, who just passed away four months ago, it's been a very difficult personal year. So we opened up the box. He had a box of his mother's stuff during Shiva. We we're going through it, and we found unpublished chugo from Ramosha. Incredible. Ramosha wrote to my grandpa, and my grandpa would write him Shailot. And Moroshas, they're friends. I mean, friends. He was the Gadolador. And I'm saying... Yeah, but they were peers. I mean, uh, you could probably fetch a, fetch a pretty penny for those. <laughs> right. They, they felt close to one another. And my grandmother to the Rebbitzin, very close. They were very close. So that was my grandfather. And then, you know, my grandfather, towards the end of his life, my father tells the story, how he, he regretted. He said, you know, I... I spent my life in a schlachthaus. I didn't speak English. Like I, I, this is where my life was. You know, I think about that. I mentioned that during, I think a talk maybe it was my father's solution. I mentioned that, that, you know, in, in my mind's eye, I picture my father going to Shemayim now, meeting his father, saying, let me tell you what happened. What your sons did. Let me tell you what your grandchildren are doing. Let me tell you about the great-grandchildren living in Israel, or Chayalim, and the ones in America who are Marbit's Torah, and how much learning, and Shmirat Shabbat, and what's happening because of them, all because you spent your life in the Shlechtes. Amazing. So, so you were raised not in Connecticut, it sounds like, your father, though, was was raised there. And I guess ultimately he went on a different path. What did what were your parents doing when you were a child and how did you how were you raised personally? Yeah. So my my father grew up in Hartford. He went to YU, actually. 
that's a whole great YU story, which is my father. And by the way, I love doing this when you ask about me, my story, because it's so important for, you know, especially in a world where identity is, you know, defined by how you feel at the moment. Is to is to see your story in greater terms, and I, actually, we're in Rosh Chodesh Nisan. That is a central theme of Pesach. You know, going back to our Sinai Mitzrayim, but you know, the transition, the Magid, the parent teaching the child. It's all about this seeing yourself in in greater, larger terms. So, even my YU story, I see myself that way. Is my father is the president of the student council of Yeshiva College. <laughs> so he tells a story. He told the story that when he and his when he was the president, so it was the 75th year of YU's anniversary of YU's existence. So Dr. Belkin, the president of Yeshiva University, asked him to work together with the president of the Stern College Student Council to put together the 75th convocation celebration events. Oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> so he put he put them together. The president of the student council at College was Rosalie Bayer, and she is my mother. So Dr. Belkin was their shadchan in a sense. That was um, a lot of pressure on you growing up. You know, you got these two presidents. You know, so you outdid them. You're like, I'm not going to just be the president of the student organization. I'm going to take the whole thick and thick. So I didn't I didn't ever feel that pressure. Although I always knew I was going to. Why you? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a question that that is where I was uh, I was going to go to college, but I grew up really in the Yeshiva University family, you know, and it was it was very much under the influence of the Rav of Salvechik. Um, my grandfather, even who was of course not a student of the Rav, but when he moved to Forest Hills, also my so my father went to college. I met my mother. Uh, they went out. Eventually, they got married. They moved to Forest Hills, to Queens. That's where I grew up. I grew up in Queens. And at some point, my grandparents moved to Forest Hills, three blocks away from me. I lived on Dartmouth Street. They lived on Groton Street. And my grandfather would go to Maria, would go to the city once a week to hear my, the rub. Also, my uncle would take my grandfather to hear the rub. And my uncle became a, a real Talmud Mubuk of the Rub. And so it was very much under the Hashba, it was under the influence of the Rub, of Salvechik, of Yeshiva University. Like this is all in our, you know, blood, literally in my mother's milk, or I guess figuratively in my mother's milk. <laughs> but that's how I was nourished and raised. What did your parents do? So my father, you know, I'm, I've had a lot of time to reflect, you know, during Shiva and afterwards. And I think the best way of explaining what my father was, was an entrepreneur. Before it was in fashion. Now, right, it wasn't a word, really. <laughs> it wasn't a word. Now we have majors and we study entrepreneurship. We have this great and amazing business school dean. Yeah, he's also been on the podcast, Wasserman. Oh, he's amazing. He's amazing. I love him. He's amazing. And... That's just an expert. I mean, there's two New York Times best-selling books, such a kid as Hashem. He's, he's just amazing. So my father was was an entrepreneur before we had majors and studies and research on it, and would 
love to start businesses, sell them, start another one. Some of them didn't work. Baruch Hashem, enough worked. <laughs> and it was very much, you know, I think of, I, I spoke in a social, it was around Yosef, it was at the end of Gracious, but the idea, just the ups and downs of life <clears throat> and riding it with the real sense of composure. There's a whole lesson of Nasata and Nasata Ba'amuna. Like, what does it mean to do business Ba'amuna, which isn't just about honesty, which of course is a given, honesty and integrity, but with faith, but going about your life, you know, with faith. It changes, it's the same ups and downs, you know, but it's just a very different experience. So my father was an entrepreneur. It actually made it exciting. I didn't even know what he was doing. Like other people, like, what does your father do? He works for IBM for 60 years. You know, he, you know, it was a very vertical kind of, you can map it. And my father, I didn't even know what business he was going to be in. At one point, he owns a small airline that flew the Islanders. That was like a big thing. Oh, that, that's cool. I was like, I was like so excited about that one. I was telling all my friends and I, you know, I remember coming in one day and like, you know, can I go meet the Islanders? And he's like, oh, we sold that. <laughs> and during the time of Trivial Pursuit, the board games, he made a board game about New York City that was like Trivial Pursuit like, like owned some oil things one time. He did a lot of different things. And then he got into high tech and sold one of his companies to Microsoft. And wow. I, yeah, it was, and he he loved telling stories. He was a great, it was a great storyteller, and he loved that I was in this position. Like that was really something that we, you know, he, in addition to his love for YU, he loved talking to me about what was happening at YU, and he was really for me. He wasn't just a guide, but he was certainly my greatest cheerleader, and it's part of the. Vacuum that I feel. My mother actually taught in special education and she was a great teacher. The students loved her. And um, that's what she did. And, and I mean, she gave up teaching when she was raising us and then went back to it. And then they made Aliyah. They moved to Israel. My brother and sister made Aliyah. They moved to Israel about 20 years ago. And we made Aliyah 15 years ago. And it's a long story to get there. But, you know, we made it the same time that my parents did. Once my, once my siblings went, my parents started going six months, six months. And then we came and they all, we all were in Israel. Took the plunge. Yeah. Incredible. So let's fast forward a little bit. You, you, I guess, grew up going to the local schools in Queens, the Jewish schools over there. And you said eventually yeah. why you, what was kind of your, your educational journey? Yeah, I went to Yeshiva Tzvaris Moshe, which is not usually the feeder school to the presidency of Yeshiva University. Tzvaris Moshe in Queens or the one in Israel? Right. No, Yeshiva Tzvaris Moshe in Queens, Kew Gardens. That was my elementary school. Half the students in my graduating class went to like MTA or Torah, like those kinds of schools. And the other half went to Itri and, you know, Philly and more right wing you know. places. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, and it was a real, 
And it was great. Like nobody knew the differences. Nobody, you know, we're all we're all yeah. friends playing punch ball. They don't make schools like that anymore, at least not in the New York area. Right. I don't think they play punch ball anymore. But that was like a, <laughs> that was a highlight. That punch ball was a highlight. But it was really it was a great it was a great childhood. It was I grew up the youngest of Forest Hills with a great chaver of friends, great families with us. It was really very, I don't want to say idyllic, that's a little too strong, but it was nice. It was pleasant. It was joyful. It was loving. So now that I look back on it, it was some just amazing brachot that that was, uh, that was my life. That's, uh, that was my childhood. From there, we went to MTA. And MTA is a whole other experience having traveling to an hour away to school every day on the bus. And MTA was like the big school. I went from Little Chivas Vars Moshe to a big school. And it just, that was great. Baruch Hashem. Did you know early on that you wanted to become a rabbi? Was that, was that in the cards for you from a young age? Not at all. There was no way I was going to become a rabbi. That's not how I envisioned myself. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. You know, my father was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer. I ended up, my first cousin was a lawyer. My brother became a lawyer. Like, law was like the, the, the path. Not that I loved the law, but it was like the path that we would naturally go in. So uh, in high school, I certainly never imagined go become a rabbi. I went to Israel for Yeshiva Haratzion for two years. And already in high school, I started to get a little more serious about learning in Torah. And Minyan, I started getting a little more serious about that. And then when I was in Israel, it, it, it continued much further. And that's when I began to think that, well, perhaps I should be in Avodah HaKodesh. I still continued in the law school track. I took the LSATs. I got into law school. I hope it was Cardozo. That's all I could say. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't Cardozo. It wasn't Cardozo. I could say in this context. <laughs> no, I was in Columbia. I was applied and in Columbia Law School. And at the same time, I was going to do smicha, which is a very common thing in my family. My cousin did it. My, my brother did it. So... I then went to Israel. I got married. I'll tell you about the story of my wife. That's a whole another 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 angle. Don't tell me she was uh, the president of the student organization. <laughs> no, but well, there's it's a connection. Not that it's also interesting. I think what do I know? But I studied in Gross. I was in the Kolel with my wife and a lot of other young great rabbinic couples. Great two years together, and I decided. Not, I said after this, I said, I'm just going into Motorcycodesh. I gave up. I told Columbia I'm out. And I just went to Smicha and, you know, continued. We can talk more about that. My wife, I met on the MTA Central blind date. You're going to have to explain what that is. And that does not sound like something that uh, would exist in 2023. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Nor right and 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 nor then didn't have any official standing or approval. But I was there was at the time the seniors in MTA and the juniors in Central would be set up 
unofficially. There's there's a night, a play, and there's you know some students from MTA, some students essential would get together and they would either they knew people or they'd randomly set them up, and they'd all go out one night together. It was the MTA Central blind date. As a group date or with individual couples? So the individual couples would go out in the group and then they go off to you know dinner or whatever they do in, in smaller pairs. I couldn't make the play, but I got the phone number, the blind date, Anita Ash, and I called her and I ended up spending over an hour on the phone with her. And I said, I couldn't make that play, but can we go a different time? And we double, double dated. And that's how I met my wife. The, the rest out. of your life was a compensation for the, uh, the one night you missed. <laughs> All right, exactly. So I was 17. She was 16. We've been, we dated each other and then married, you know, ever since. I think they call that in uh, rabbinic terms, uh, a mitzvah baba vera. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I, I love, I love the the imagery of the uh, the date night, the blind date night. You know, MTA Central. It just, it's so uh, anachronistic, I guess. You know, it's like it's so you can't imagine. I mean, I get you know nowadays we want to go out to go out, but like can't imagine like a committee kind of you know. Right. <laughs> it's like it was like a couple of you know these popular like yeah. guys on the basketball team. The cool kids did it, yeah. I owe Shadchanis to, you know, so. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So you, I imagine that when you were in Israel, you became close to the Rabbi Lichtenstein if you were in Haaretzion. Uh, um, that was a uh, formative experience of my life and formative relationship in my life. Rabbi Mori, Rabbi Lichtenstein, Zatzal. You know, when I started Yeshiva Haaretzion, I would, if he knew me, if he knew my name, I would have been so honored. And then, you know, by the end, I've, I spent two years learning in Gush. And then afterwards, two years in Gush, the Gush the yeah. was the Rosh Kolo. Yeah. You know, we were able, I was Zoha, truly Zoha, to develop a Rebbe Talmud relationship. And I would speak to Rav Uchenstein about all central matters, certainly of guidance and advice in my life. And, you know, he taught me so much but not just about you know the content of torah but the importance of having a rebbe it was a transformative transformative bring me on a, a quick tour of your your rabbinic career you now post smicha post ordination through you know kind of the major stops was it a yeah. was it a very circuitous path what was the what no, was, actually, what was the journey it's, it's, I tell you, when I, we were in Israel in Gross, and we had to make a decision. This is the first of the many times we had to decide if we're going to make Aliyah or be in America. I've had this conversation with Wilkenstein, you know, so many years, so many times. And Gross offered us to stay in, in what they call the A-Shell, which is room and board, to teach at the time was in BMT. I gave a little chabura there. But we didn't feel that we had the resources to make it, to make Aliyah at the time. But we weren't sure if they were offering room and board. And at the same time, I could go back to YU and be in Rosh Kolo and 
be a rabbinic intern. And the opportunity opened up to be a rabbinic intern at the Jewish Center. And my wife was offered to be the dorm mother at Turo College Dormitory for Women, which was on 85th and Amsterdam at the time. And the Jewish Center was in 86th in Amsterdam and Columbus. And after weighing, speaking to Ruchsin, weighing the options, we decided we weren't, it wasn't the right time for us to make Aliyah. So we came back to the Upper West Side and I started my rabbinic career at the Jewish Center as a rabbinic intern. That place is like the, the I don't know, it's like a feeder school for YU presidents or something like that. Right. <laughs> it is the incubator. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So I, the first day I walk in, I, we just put, we, we unpacked all of our stuff in the dorm. And I, it's a Sunday, I remember. And I ran into the Jewish Center late during Davening. And who was there? Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. And here, he was a congregant. Is this, was this during Rabbi Schachter's, Rabbi J.J. Schachter's? Rabbi Schachter, Rabbi Mori, Rabbi Schachter. I spent six years underneath Rabbi Schachter. And I'll tell you, he's been on the podcast as well, and he was one of my favorite guests. Just an incredible, incredible person. He's an incredible human being. I was blown away by him. Yeah, I, I've learned, I learned so much by being under his tutelage, which is not just about how to be a rabbi, but really had to be an Evan Hashem. Uh, his priorities, focus, his menschlichkeit, his, his kindness, it's exemplary. It's 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 a load star. I know that I will never reach, but I aspire to get as close as I can. And he, uh, that for me, those six years under his guidance and love is, was, was for me transformative. I also, we had, because Rabbi Lamb and I developed a close relationship during those years too. And after every drusha that I gave, I would meet with Rabbi Lamb. That's intimidating, by the way. <laughs> so that's what I tell you. It's very interesting. So after every drusha I met with Rabbi Lamb, and Rabbi Lamb would give me constructive advice. And I remember once saying to Mrs. Lamb, that she was also amazing, Mindy Lamb, just an amazing. He's just the couple. It's just so astonishing. But just they're they're so holy and and they're they're so in this world. She said, I said to her, you know, it's amazing that people in the past haven't gone off to Rabbi Lamb. He was so nice to me. He gave me so much of his time. I'm president now. I know now. I can appreciate every minute is totally counted for. And I'm like, it's so, it's so amazing that he said, and that nobody, you know, he hasn't done this before. And she said, nobody's ever asked. <laughs> he was so accessible if you, if you approach him. And he gave me so much of his time. And he was a master. I mean, a master. I read his speeches every, every week, by the way. They send them out through the YU Torah, as I'm sure you, of course, know. And mm -hmm. I just love to read them, for, first of all, for their construction and just the, the, the art of it. And they're also like these time pieces, you know, where they're kind of like frozen in time. It's like the Vietnam War or, you know, into, you know, segregation or whatever he's talking about. They're literally these, you know, these, these markers in time, but yet the messages are still so relevant. I, I just, I love them. Well, my, my husband for Rabbi Lamb was Rabbi Lamb is an artist and an architect. 
And he was an architect in building the uh, infrastructure of our entire community. And he was an artist in his oratory and his, it's art. And there are things there. And he, he, he lifted the curtain to show me how it's done. Not that I could do it, but I, I, I at least know how it's done. <laughs> and it's art. There's music. The things that Rabbi Lamb did that people don't even know that he was doing. The reasons why they liked his speech, they didn't even realize. There was text and then a subtext. It was next level. And, you know, I was really those years in the Jewish Center with Rabbi Schachter and also getting the guidance of Rabbi Lamb and with a very loving community. I love the Jewish Center. So, so much so that I, I was too difficult for me to leave, meaning during the six years, there were other opportunities that I looked at, but it was too hard. And I remember Rabbi Lamb saying to me, Ari, what do you want to do? Because I was also online to be a Rosh Hashiva at YU. Meaning at the same time, I was in Shechter's call, and then I went to the Kol Elio at the time under... Rabbi Aaron Khan. So I learned three more years in the Kol Elyon, and then I started as a Rebbe in, in the Beit Midrash program. I was a Ram at, at NYU and online to like there was some like mythical line <laughs> that, that now that I'm the president, I'm like, where's the line? Where's the list? I was, like When I was in NYU, there was like some list. I'm like, so I don't know exactly where I was. I think I was I was somewhere around where David Hirsch and 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 Svi Sabalovsky was somewhere around over there. Those are good people to be around, right? And it was just it was like a list, you know. So Rabbi Lamb said to me, "What, what do you want to do? Do you want to be the rabbi of a large congregation, and do you want to be a Rosh Hashiva at YU?" I said, "I want to do both." I said Ari, you can't. It's impossible. <laughs> so I said, I want to try. He said he could try. So Rabbi Schachter left the Jewish Center, and they appointed me as the rabbi. And I continued giving shear at BMP. But it got, it did get very, it was very difficult. <laughs> so BMP was a four-hour program. And so in the beginning, I took off. I took a year off from there, and then I went back, and four hours was too much. So then I had somebody did the first year for me, and we gave Makoro to the Beit Midrash, and I came in and gave the 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 Gemara year, and we did that. That also was really hard. <laughs> and so eventually what we did was we moved the Kolel. We said, ah, we had a Chab, because going up there was so much time. So a section of Rav Shechter's Kolel came to the Jewish Center, and I was Rosh Kolel. Nice. So that was like perfect. Because now I'm at I'm the rabbi in the congregation that I love. I have the kolel and I'm a rosh kolel at YU um, with the Talmidim who had, we gave chaburas and they learned with the balabatim at night. It was great. And everything was wonderful. And then I made Aliyah. <laughs> so tell me about that moment, I guess, of I would say rupture, you know, where you decide, you know, I've got everything going on in, in such a 
smooth way. You're like, you know, I'm going to pick up and go. I guess were your children reaching a certain age that you felt it was now or never? And, you know, you have aspirations to do something specific there or was it more being there? Yeah. I mean, it was really all of those. It was my oldest son was going to eighth grade. And again, Baruch Hashem, I love, I still love the Jewish center. We're still, I'm profoundly close to the congregation. And life was great. You know, we had my wife, children, everybody, every Baruch Hashem was really, was great. But my oldest son was going to eighth grade. And I knew that after that, moving when the oldest child is in high school is very difficult. So I said to the Jewish center, I'm planning on going to Israel for the year and seeing what happens. The old one-year sabbatical trick. (laughs) Right. So actually, I'll tell you what happens. I I haven't really spoke about this publicly. What happened was I didn't want to ask them for a sabbatical because I knew that they would give it to me. But I didn't, I really did want to have an open possibility of making Aliyah. Like I was going just to check that out. So I didn't want to ask them for a sabbatical. So I told them that I'm leaving. And because I don't want to ask them, I don't think it was right to ask them. My contract was up. So listen, I'm just going to leave. If it doesn't work out in Israel, I'll have to find something back in America, something else. You know, I love you. I don't want to hold you. So they actually came back to me and said, instead of leaving, take a sabbatical. We have a great assistant rabbi who became the rabbi who's dear dear, dear friend who I love deeply, Rabbi Yossi Levine, take a sabbatical. Rabbi Levine will be the interim and you decide and tell us by the end of May. We don't want to make it too early because then you'll just say, you're not, you don't know, you're not coming. So tell us by the end of May what you're planning on doing. And that's, and, and it was that kind of relationship. I'm saying we we're like thinking about the other. And I was very comfort- comforted knowing whatever I decided, like having Rabbi Levine there, I knew would the Jewish Center would be in great hands. Like that was a real nechama. Like I knew the Jewish Center would be amazing and he'd be amazing. And he is amazing. I knew that would work out great. So I went to Israel and in May, we analyzed all the data. We spoke to the children, teachers. We spent the year in the Bay Daniel, which became afterwards our home, and we decided that we were going to stay in Israel. And we informed the congregation, really at the end of May, that we're staying in Israel. We told Nefesh Benefesh, we're on a flight in August, and we went back to America, packed up our stuff, and came back to Israel. But I didn't have a job. It wasn't like I was going for a reason. You know, Hashem has given us the greatest you know, bracha in the 2,000 years, which is Medinat Israel. we wanted to see, first we want to see about raising our children there, and secondly, what we can do to help this most amazing project of the Jewish people, which is building building the state. So I left without a job. I spent those the first years actually finishing my doctorate at Hebrew University. I uh, spent five years in the library, which was learning. And working with my manche also was so kind to me. My advisor was Professor Moshe Halbertal. Unbelievable in breadth and depth of knowledge. But in addition, he was so kind to me. You know, I'm here, I'm an Ole, you know, student at Hebrew University. 
Moshe Halbertal was packed with students. And I remember when I applied, I, I, I applied for the doctoral program officially. First, I had to write a paper, a thesis to get in. And then I applied. And the head of the, the doctoral decision making said that you could come in, but you can't do Moshe Halbertal because there are too many people who, he has too many students. So I went to Moshe and he's like, I got it. Don't worry. And he, he made sure that they allowed me in. So I studied it five years. I was in the library. I was, I was working. I took classes at Hebrew U liberally. I loved the, the classes at Hebrew U, especially in the Talmud department. Professor Brody, Robert Brody, I learned the Gaonim underneath Robert Brody, opened my eyes to the whole Tkufa, the whole period of the Gaonim, which in general, in the yeshiva world, you know, you read the Gemara and you go to Rashi. The Gemara ended like in the 500s, let's say, and Rashi is 1050, right? There's a good 500 years there that we, we don't like, we just skip over it. And so he like opened my eyes to the Gaonim and the importance, even if you want to understand the Rishonim and certainly going to understand the Rambam, you have to have the basis of the Gaonim. Uh, Simcha Emanuel, Professor Emanuel, manuscripts, Kitveyad, opened my eyes to a whole new area that I never had exposure to. It was such an important formative learning period for me. And then I just took classes. I just sat in philosophy classes, sociology. Any, it was just interesting. You know, as a doctoral student, you could sit in anything. So I just, I did. What did you write your dissertation on? So my dissertation is on Gertosha. Interesting. And how the Gaonim and Rishonim viewed this category, this halachi category of an ideal non-Jew, some non-Jew who gets privileges in halacha, some of which, like one would treat a fellow Jew, who is this person? And what is what? why is he deserving of these privileges? And I spent years working. I could say, I think I could honestly say that I am the world's expert on Ger Toshav in the high middle age period. <laughs> That's good because I was going to say there's there's other periods in which I think I, I may know more about it. <laughs> Only I'm saying I have a couple hundred years there. Those are your those are your years though. Those are my years. Those are my years. So I'm holding like that those are my years and the truth is we uncovered an amazing story. Amazing. I'm so excited. I haven't even spoken at why you're anywhere about really about Gerto shop the evolving, amazing story of Ger Toshav and how the Gaonim and the Rishonim in Ashkenaz, in Sfarad, in Provence, how they contemplated and conceptualized that there's a non-Jew who gets privileges. And who is that? What's his character? What are we rewarding? And it's the how it, it moved, how the story moved. That's fascinating. I'm not sure how much... It would help you on the fundraising trail, but I think a, a lecture a lecture series though could be fascinating for some small subset of the of the YU population. <laughs> right, very very tiny, very very. Tiny. <laughs> but eventually, eventually, you were su- summoned back to America. I mean, what were you doing in Israel? You, you did your doctorate, 
you're there. I imagine you start teaching in yeshivas or in university there. And then, and then what happened that you were sort of summoned back to this calling and where you're sitting now in, in upper New York? Yes. Yeah, so I, after I finished my doctorate Hebrew, U, I assumed the position at Herzog College. And I sat on their executive committee to administer the college in, in you know, large terms, the larger issues. And I taught at Herzog College, which was amazing. Like the teaching, these were Hesder, the, at the end of their Hesder years, their fifth year Hesder, post-Hesder. And we did all these kinds of topics, all these middle halachi categories, like the, the non-Jew who gets privileges, or the Jew, like the Meshumad, the Jew who, who's on his way out. Apostate. loses privileges. <laughs> And you know, worked on a number of number of great semesters with uh, our students there, and set up for them. I was the head of Heichal Shlomo. They took over Herzog College over Heichal Shlomo. We were building a center for Jewish life and learning in the middle of Jerusalem. That was the ambition. They actually now it's really built out. They did so much of our plans that we were thinking at the time. And coming back there is really amazing what they've been able to accomplish. And so I'm I'm a deep connection with them. So I'm sitting in my office in the heart of Yerushalayim. Literally, the heart of Yerushalayim, over, overlooking, you know, the crossroads in, on, on King George. In King George, thank you. And I receive a call. Are you interested in exploring become the president of Yeshiva University. So I said, no. Why would I be? I mean, my whole family, we've acclimated, Baruch Hashem. We've been in Israel. Everybody's happy. I can't tell you what a bracha is, how hard it is. Yeah, everybody's acclimated. Everybody's happy. I have this great position. I'm literally a block away from my parents. My parents live in Rechavia. So I go there for lunch like a few times a week. And like you walk into your mother's home, like I walk in, she's like, Ari, what do you, what do you want? What can I make you? <laughs> you know, steak. What do you tell? What do you want? You know, I come to my own home. Listen, the garbage is over there. You know, there's stuff in the sink. You know, I'm saying, you go to your mother's home. Like, like what a life. You know, you just go and then. at at your mother's house, you're like a Jew. At your pair at your own house, maybe like a Gertoshov. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I never thought of that. Yeah. So. <laughs> And then I started getting calls, really from my rebellion and from other uh, leadership at YU, outlining the opportunity to make a difference, opportunity to do something meaningful. And I remember one conversation I had with a great philosopher who uh, was a great scholar in Israel. He said to me, that the most important community in the Jewish world today is the Yeshiva University community. Wow. So they are the bridge builders. They're the ones that that are the connective tissue that can combine, you know, Israel and the diaspora, secular and religious, and the past and the future. Like the, this community, this if Yeshiva University is maximized, its impact is groundbreaking. You know, so I spoke to my family. The most important impact you have is on your family. The most important people in your life is your family. And we had some real, you know, heart-to-heart conversations about this 
and what we thought we can do. When we decided that we could do it, I then spoke to the leadership of YU. And I found in the trustees, the search committee, real you know, partners who believe in Yeshiva University and believed in its greatness and its potential. So with much discussion and exploration, uh, I came back. And they were comfortable, obviously, with a a commuter type of situation, which I mean, by and by they, I mean, both the employers, but also your family, because the commuting is really, sounds like majority in America, in New York. You right. Know, so. I, I wouldn't say commuting. I would say commuting only in the sense that the president of university travels a lot. Right. Not necessarily to Israel, but <laughs> I definitely am commuting, but to all over the parts of this country and beyond. But we did keep our house in Abay Daniel, meaning I spend most of my time now in Yeshiva University's house in Teaneck, where they bought me a place in Teaneck. And two of my children came back with me. The other three at the time were all in the Hezder army system or, or post. Uh, now we actually have also three and two. My oldest son is in Tel Aviv University in psychology after being a Malaya Dumim and being, you know, in the army. My second son, after finishing Gush and being Gavati, is in Hebrew University in computer science. And my third son finished the army and has there in uh, Garin Torani in, in Netanya. And he came to YU this year. Oh, wow. As a student. Fun. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun, you want to experience. I hope he gets a tuition break. That's all. <laughs> so it was, it, the experience of being an Israeli, being in, in YU is fascinating. Like just seeing it from those eyes, that perspective. And my daughter, meanwhile, who came back with us for high school, graduated high school and is now back in Israel in Sherut Lumi. And my youngest son is in ninth grade in MTA. So I actually have two. I have two YU students with me. And does your wife come back and forth with you or is she? She's here. No, she's, I mean, the same schedule. We try to spend as much time for families, her parents, her father just passed away a couple of years ago. And you know, she, her, her parents are here and her sister's here. And we travel back to Israel when we, when we can, you know, we'll be there in Pesach, you know, when, when we can over the summer, the Chagim, during the winter. So what drew, what drew you into this job at YU? I mean, what was the, what, what did you feel that needed to be done that maybe only you could do or that you could do uniquely? And of course, you know, I'm sure people understand that the president of a, of a university, while it, of course it brings a great deal of, you know, of, of honorifics and, and, you know, as we say, covered, right. But at the same time, it's largely a fundraising position as well as, you know, a strategic mapping and vision position. And that means you're all of a sudden responsible for a massive, massive budget. Why you, at least at some point had some very difficult financial times, I know post Madoff and, and all of that kind of thing. So, I mean, th- this was, you know, a formidable challenge and kind of, where did you see yourself inserting and, and being able to be that difference maker. Yeah. I mean, there are three aspects of being the president of Yeshiva University. And one is this strategy, the strategic visionary, and finding the partners to help build the vision for the future. The second is being the CEO and having the institution running, you know, in all of its schools and all of its departments. And the third is finding the partners 
uh, you know, fundraising partners, philanthropic partners, and educational partners to move us into the future. You know, my goal when I started YU, which I outlined in my investiture speech, actually, was twofold. Number one, not in importance order, but number one was to upgrade and update the educational structure to meet the enormous opportunities of today. We live in an amazing time where the pace of technology and discovery and innovation, you know, is shifting and moving like we've never seen before. And it's it's essential for an educational institution to be nimble and to find the areas of opportunity. And YU, you know, when, when I was at YU, it was a school where you, you know, became a lawyer or a doctor. Okay? But the whole, whole world has changed. And we still have our lawyers and doctors. But we also have our entrepreneurs. And we have our computer scientists. You know, and we have a whole range of, you know, of graphic artists, digital marketing, social worker, and a new, new era, you know, psychology. Like, there's a whole world that has shifted and we needed to you know we need to move the education towards that level you know that is essential that's number one the second half of that is yeshiva university deeply rooted in its philosophy meaning it's essential that we know what we stand for. i mean we're the flagship jewish universe and everyone knows it. i mean when i'm out in the world out in the country, every everyone knows where the where the nation's leading Jewish university, and we're turned to and looked at that. In January, I was in Morocco with a group of students. We have leadership scholars, and one of the things we do in holistic education is we take them on trips so they could have a larger network, meet broader constituencies, and give them the kind of experiences, connections that will help them be the leaders of tomorrow. So I received a call. The American Council of Education wants to run a conference in Washington during the time that I was supposed to be in Morocco. And they asked me if I'd speak in the keynote panel with the president of Notre Dame. So I said, you know, thank you for the invitation, but I'm actually going to be in Morocco. I can't be in Washington. So they said to me that if you don't come to this conference, we can't have this conference. You can't have a conference about faith-based universities in America without Yeshiva University. Wow. So while everybody else had to be there in person, they asked me if I would zoom in just so they could have it. Okay, so everyone knows, like people know the world over, Yeshiva is the flagship Jewish university. But what does it mean to be the flagship Jewish university? The second half of our agenda you know, is to flesh out the Torah that we teach. You know, what is the world view that our community stands for? I just spoke an hour <laughs> yesterday, speaking about that in the Beit Midrash at YU, and I just wrote a book about it, actually, called The Final Exam, Letters to Our Students, that talks about the worldview. And I call it the final exam, not because some student said to me, is he going to help me take tests? I'm like, no, it's not that exam. 
final exam is based on the Pasuk, Vaya Amunati Techa, Chosein Yeshuot Chachmas Vadas. And that Pasuk, Rava says in the Gemara and Shabbos, Laman uh, Alpha Manalav, reflects the six questions that you will be asked at the end of your days. And they list the six questions, the Satam and the Satam Bamuna, we deal with business with integrity and faith. And Kavati Itzim Torah, we set aside a time to study Torah, of course. Studying Torah is the essential sine qua non act of, of the Jewish uh, tradition. Asaktiv Puri which isn't just about having children, it's about loving your children and building your family. And Tzipita of the Yeshua, which isn't just waiting for salvation, but it's actually working for redemption. And being a Zionist, actively out in the world, working for redemption. And Papalta Bechachma, not just you know knowing every Rashi, which is essential, but Chachma, wisdom. Have you put wisdom into your life? And Avanta Davar Mitochtavar, which isn't just about critical analytical skills, but about growing, living a life of growth. And everything the Gemara closes with is Yirat Hashem Everything has to be in the context of Yirat Shemai. This is the final exam. And what I've argued is, is that our core Torah values, what Yeshiva University stands for, helps our students prepare for this, live a life of meaning, of purpose, of love, contribution, and of service. And that's the other half. Meaning it's not just when you talk about what's the what's the position of being present. The strategic vision isn't just about the forward focus, but it's about deeply rooted. And it's not just about making sure that our students are positioned to succeed enormously in their future with their education, which we at the, is at the top of our mind, but also that they're deeply rooted that they're rooted in our Torah and in our values, and that they're going to be successful, not just in their professional life, but in their personal life as Abde Hashem. They're going to be able to find who they are. And there is no one answer to these questions. Every person is holy. Every person is different. And our goal at YU is to help you find yourself. As I've said often, that education is not just a window into the world. It's a light into your soul. And that's what we're doing at, at Yeshiva. That's what I, how I view my position, which is the strategy and the vision to, to help with my partners. The Rosh Yeshiva, the senior Rosh Yeshiva Yeshiva University are absolutely my partners. The trustees of Yeshiva University, my partners. The faculty, the professionals, the students, their input in this whole project, the lay leadership, they're all my partners in building an institution that is deeply rooted and forward-focused, that stands for our values, that understands the Torah that we stand, that, that we promote, and brings our students out with enormous trajectory of success. You're standing at a very unique perch, you know, where you are as the, the president of this flagship institution. It's not just a Jewish university, but more particularly, I think people would you know classify it as a modern Orthodox institution, whatever that means, Torah Omada. And, and that's a movement that has always you know come under scrutiny from all different sides, right? That there's there's the the left, the right. How do you 
see the state of modern orthodoxy currently? And how do you navigate the relationships with different flanks, so to speak, of the observant Jewish community? I don't see the world as so divided, to be honest. I see a lot of allies. And, you know, when I was growing up, there was ideological divides. I don't see that anymore or as much. Um, to be frank, we advertise in Lakewood right now. We have students, our student body, and we have so much online. Our student body has grown in our graduate schools by over 60% in the past four years. Like when I started, there was about 1,900 graduate students. Now there's 3,200 graduate students. And we have a significant amount of them are in the yeshiva Hasidic community. Because we know, you know, we share so much, of course, as B'nai Torah. So we've opened our resources and we're thrilled to give access. And now that it's online, it's so it's so much easier to do. We don't see people, you know, drawing lines and saying you're on one side or on the other. The, you know, we had a trustee meeting last year. I showed them and said, this is the future student body of OIU. It was three students, a South African woman who came from no background, who a Balachuva came to OIU. She's amazing. A typical OIU family from Boca Raton and a Hasidic man from Muncie. I said, here's your... Here's the students of Yeshiva University. Now, of course, it's much larger than that because we have, you know, graduate schools that are for Jews and non-Jews. Yeah. We have students from all over the world, you know, 91 different countries that come to, you know, Cardozo and Furkoff and Wurzweiler and the Katz School of Science and Health. And all of this is infused with Jewish values. All of this is infused with what I've called the core Torah values that inspire the entire institution. Not just the Jewish population, by the way, even the non-Jewish population. I actually don't see those uh, those divides. And we get a lot of support. Uh, people are religious, not religious. I mean, our supporters un- understand and appreciate how essential it is to have a flagship Jewish university in America today. To have a university that's proud to be pro-Israel in America today. And in a university that stands proudly as a, a Jewish institution that flies the Israeli flag 365 days a year. You know, when we when our basketball team won, I'll tell you a story about the basketball team as an example of what I'm saying. They started winning. I remember the first time they went to the NCAA tournament was a few years ago. The first game was in York, Pennsylvania. It's like four hours away from New York, and it was Mamash Arab Shabbat. So very few people could travel from New York to be there. The team went and stayed in a hotel over Shabbat. And they figured they'd go York, Pennsylvania. They'd play. Hopefully they win. If they win, they were would play a Matsai Shabbat again. Anyway, they get to this arena. The place is packed with Yeshiva University fans. And they go over and they're like, it's so nice to hear. Who are you? And they said, well, we're congregants in the local reform temple. And we're here to cheer on our team, Yeshiva University. When Yeshiva University wins, the entire Jewish people. Uh, we've seen that consistently. So I don't, I don't have the same vision of those lines. I actually see uh, Am Yisrael. 
My favorite ad, and I'm not involved in the ads, but I just opened up one of the local newspapers, and I love this ad. And you open it up, it's two pages, you know, one picture of Yeshiva University students dancing with an Israeli flag. It says, Am Yisrael Chai. That's Yeshiva University. Am Yisrael Chai. Do you work to build alliances with you know, leaders of other sectors of the Orthodox community, people in the in the Lakewood world, and the or even to the left as well. I mean, it's it's more it it happens, and it's not really me that's doing it. The schools are they open themselves to you know we have the partnership with Sarshnir. It's it's the schools interact with the other you know either institutions or individuals. You know, I said the that's what the way that I'm able to do anything. I I set the vision for it, people, and you know, my vision is that we are we have the greatest intellectual educational resource under Jewish auspices, and while we look to be a bracha and a blessing to the entire society, we specifically have a sense of responsibility and achrayus to the Jewish people at large. And we are happy to figure out the partnerships and create access points for the students. We're a, I mean, we moved up in the rankings. We've invested so significantly that we moved up from 97 and US News to 67, 30 places in like three years. In New York City, we're number three. It's Columbia. NYU, Yeshiva University, and then Fordham. So if you want a top-tier education with the promise of the profession afterwards, so we wanna, we're happy to open the access points. So it's been very natural. Like again, I haven't seen these lines. It's just the opposite. You know, it's it's Am Yisrael Chai. You forged a partnership with Chabad, I think, as well, right? With providing some education for one of their programs. Personally, I'm a huge fan of Chabad, huge. And I think the, the, the sense of shlichut, of mission, they have their individual rabbanim who go out, the sense of shlichut. You know, we infuse a sense of shlichut, not just to our smicha students, but to all of our students. And when they're out in Goldman Sachs, they should feel a sense of shlichut. When they're out in the workplace, the sense that they... Or have an opportunity to be Makadi Shem Shemayim Barabim and spread the Jewish story forward. That's part of Tzipita Yeshua. What does it mean to work for, for the redemption? What does it mean to be a Zionist today? It's not just about moving to Israel. That too, we encourage everyone, you know, move to Israel, but it's not just about moving to Israel. If you're in America, you have an opportunity of access points, of influence, an opportunity to sanctify Hashem's name and make his name more beloved. That through you, the name of God will become more beloved. You have an opportunity to spread the name of God in ways actually they don't even have in Israel because it's a society of, of you know, fellow Jews. But here is really an opportunity to, uh, to be Makati Shem Shemayim. And we, put, we try to put all of our students on Shlichot, on a mission. That's our, so I, I'm, I'm a big admirer 
of what Chabad is, has accomplished. And and to continue this, I actually went to the Rebbe's Tish when I was younger. My father was very close with Rabbi Kalarsky, or Moshe Kalarsky. We were very close. So we would go to the Kalarskys for Purim. Wow. For Purim so and he they then we'd go to the Rebbe's Tish. And I sat as a little boy at the Rebbe's Tish. In closing, I remember the future seems bright, and and I know you're you've embarked on this massive you know, fundraising campaign. I, at least from the ads that I see, which I know you don't make the ads, but I'm I'm assuming before they pick a number of six hundred thirteen million, they probably run it by you. <laughs> I was involved. No, it actually wasn't my idea. We looked at the numbers, and we we're around looking at about six hundred, and somebody's like, "Let's do six thirteen. And let me tell you, it's so smart because it actually represents what we're about. Like, rarely is it a number that represents you. You know, usually you just pick up, you have a fundraising number. But 613, that's what we're about. We're about Torah and about mitzvah. You know, I had this someone come in. He I wasn't very involved. And I showed him around. He wanted to get involved. I said, okay. I said, I showed him the JSS Beit Midrash, which is the Beit Midrash. People come with no background, public schools, kids from internationally all over the world. Come in, he meets the students. One guy stands up and says, today is my hundredth day in a row that I put on tefillin. I put on a hundred days in a row and I'm marking it. And I start a WhatsApp group to encourage other people to put on tefillin. So now other people are putting on tefillin. The guy's like, this is amazing. He's crying. I'm like, wait, let's go to the other Beit Midrash. We cross the, the pedestrian mall. We go into the Gluck Beit Midrash. Hundreds of people learning. The cold Torah of the Gluck Beit Midrash. They walk in, hundreds of people. He's like, what's going on over here? So let me introduce you to the Gadol Hador. Rav Shechter's sitting right over here. I bring him over to Rav Shechter. He meets Rav Shechter. He can't believe it. He's meeting Rav Shechter. I said, okay, and talks to them. And then I walk him out like, oh, I forgot somebody else because this guy was interested in math and computer science. So let me introduce you to the head of the computer science department who sits in the Beit Midrash every single morning in morning sit. So I introduced him to the computer science department, talking computer science. The guy doesn't know what to do with himself. We go back to my office. He's like, Rabbi, what can I do for you? I've never seen a place like this. You have the, the, the beginners coming from internationally, the learning First time you have the Gadol Hador, you have the Kol Torah, even the computer science guy is sitting there. What can I do for you? I said, listen, we have a $613 million <laughs> campaign. All I ask is do a mitzvah. He says, okay, I'll do a mitzvah. And he gave us a million dollars. Imagine you could have asked for the Ten Commandments and you would have been done. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. So much more we could speak about, but your, the time is short and and your schedule, as you said, is, is quite busy. And it's been such an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ari. And I definitely now have a new understanding and appreciation of the Ten Commandments that I haven't had before. So I appreciate that and really appreciate your time and what you're doing for Klal Yisrael and your incredible work in the University of Maryland and with this podcast really bringing out Torah to the world. So thank you so much, Ari. Thank you very much. 
This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.